Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us today. Well, I hope everybody had a happy Hanukkah and a good new year. So, uh, unfortunately, why don't we start off with, uh, with an obituary from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, December 31st, 2022. Barbara Walters, 1929 to 2022, TV news pioneer broke into all-male anchors club. Interviewer was known for landing exclusives by Mattia Gold and Meg James. Barbara Walters, the first woman to break up the all-male club of network television anchors and one of the last remaining megastars in broadcast news who definitely coaxed world leaders and celebrities alike into revealing their secrets and deepest fears, has died. Barbara Walters passed away peacefully in her home, surrounded by loved ones. She lived her life with no regrets. She was a trailblazer not only for female journalists, but for all women. Cindy Berger, Walter's publicist, said in a statement to the Times. Seemingly indefatigable through her long career, Walters died at 93. Walt Disney Company Chief Executive Bob Iger, Walter's former boss, announced on Twitter that Walters died Friday evening at her home in New York. Barbara was a true legend, a pioneer not just for women in journalism, but for journalism itself. She was a one-of-a-kind reporter who landed many of the most important interviews of our time, from heads of state and leaders of regimes to the biggest celebrities and sports icons, Iger wrote. I had the pleasure of calling Barbara a colleague for more than three decades, but more importantly, I was able to call her a dear friend. She would be missed by all of us at the Walt Disney Company, and we send our deepest condolences to her daughter, Jacqueline. Walters had undergone heart surgery in 2010. A Kenny interviewer who prodded ranks of public figures into tearful confessions, Walters was an aggressive practitioner of the get, uh, the get who outmaneuvered competitors to lend exclusives with figures as varied as Cuban leader Fidel Castro, actress Katherine Hepburn, and White House intern Monica Lewinsky. She made history when she was named the first female co-host of NBC's Today Show in 1974, and again two years later when ABC tapped her as the first female co-anchor of the network Evening News. Walters faced open hostility from her male counterparts in both places, but never let it rattle her publicly, despite being shadowed by deep insecurities that she said lifted only late in her career. I was completely unwelcome, she told the Times in 2008. They didn't want a woman, and they didn't want me. Veteran network producer Av Weston, who worked with her at CBS and ABC, said Walters overcame what was a huge hurdle at the time, to be able to plow through the resistance of a woman being accepted as more than a bit of pretty fluff. She really was the first who did that. Walter's ill-matched pairing with Evening News anchor Harry Reasoner at ABC lasted only two years, and she went on to become a power player at the network as co-host of the primetime news magazine 2020, a post she held for a quarter century. Her creation of The View, the daytime talk show she co-hosted until 2014, gave her another prominent perch. But Walters was perhaps most familiar to viewers for her Barbara Walters specials, in which she quizzed entertainers such as Elizabeth Taylor, 
Elizabeth Taylor, George Clooney, and Michael Jackson about their personal lives, drawing them out with a mix of chumminess and relentlessness. Times television critic Mary McNamara said Walters was part confessor, part therapist, and succeeded brilliantly in making emotion newsworthy. Her ability to reinvent herself with the Times made her a singular figure in the media, an octogenarian deeply immersed in current celebrity culture. She moved in the same bold-faced social set as the movie stars and political leaders she interviewed, leading some critics to suggest she pulled her punches in interviews to avoid offending friends. Walters insisted that her personal relationships never got in the way of her job, but was unapologetic about the amiable tone she had with interview subjects in her primetime specials. I don't want them to go away discouraged, she told the New York Times in 1992. While proud of the popularity of shows such as Ten Most Fascinating People, Walters worried at times that the public had forgotten the hard-hitting interviews she did with dozens of world leaders, including Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi. When asked what she hoped to be remembered for, Walters responded, as a good journalist, adding, not as someone who made people cry. Gifted with an innate appreciation of the power of the public confessional, Walters published her own juicy autobiography at age 78, in which she detailed her guilt-ridden relationship with her mentally disabled older sister, the attempt, attempted suicide of her father, and an affair she had with, an, with a married U.S. senator in the 1970s. I wanted people to know that I, who seem to have this perfect life and this great career, and the daughter, and the men, and so forth, have not had a perfect life by any means, she told the Los Angeles Times. Barbara Jill Walters was born in Boston on September 25, 1929, the youngest daughter of Lou Walters, a vaudeville booker turned nightclub impresario who created the famed Latin Quarter Club in Times Square, and Dina Seletsky, a clerk in a men's neckwear store. Her older sister Jacqueline had a mild mental disability, a source of embarrassment and then guilt for Walters throughout her life. For a time, the family enjoyed a posh lifestyle. Walters spent part of her childhood in a vast penthouse in Manhattan and a pistachio green mansion in Miami where her father opened a Florida version of the Latin Club. Joseph P. Kennedy Sr., among other power brokers, was a frequent guest. Walters grew accustomed to encountering celebrities backstage. I met so many stars, Frank Sinatra, Milton Berle, Sophie Tucker, she recalled in an interview. It was very glamorous on the surface, but I knew they had problems and difficulties. So I've never been in awe of celebrities. That comes from my childhood. After studying theater at Sarah Lawrence College, Walters worked as a secretary at a New York adv- advertising agency, then got her first television job as a publicist for their local NBC affiliate in New York. Several years later, she was hired as a writer for the CBS's morning show, which was then co-anchored by a young Walter Cronkite and Dick Van Dyke. She made her on-camera debut on that program, replacing a model who failed to show up for a bathing suit segment. After a stint at a public relations firm, she landed a job as a writer on Today in 1961. She occasionally got to do on-air pieces, uh, even covering First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy's trip to India and Pakistan in 1962. 
Uh, Watchers made an official report, uh, an official report in October 1964, taking over for actress Maureen O'Sullivan in the role that had been known as the Today Girl. Now that she was in the spotlight, Walters worked with a voice specialist to overcome her difficulty pronouncing R's, a quirk she said was the remnant of a Boston accent. But after uh, viewers complained she sounded stilted, she gave up trying. Her distinctive speaking style would later inspire comedian Gilda Radner's Baba Wawa impression on, impersonation on Saturday Night Live. Walters sought to tackle meaty news stories, despite resentment she encountered from male colleagues. When Today host Frank McGee demanded that Walters be limited to girly interviews, she protested. Walters sought interviews outside the studio where McGee had no say, pursuing subjects with handwritten letters. She got an exclusive with President Nixon's chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, interviewed elusive Israeli defense minister Moshe Dayan, and covered Nixon's historic trip to China as one of only three, male, three female reporters in the traveling press corps. I'm very grateful that I had that period in my life, she said. I think the whole body of my work is enough so that people, I hope, realize that I don't just do celebrities. At times, her career was filled with escapades out of a James Bond movie. A Panamanian dictator tried to romance her. She secretly passed on a message to President Reagan from an Iranian arms dealer involved in the Iran-Contra deal, an act that drew a public reprimand from ABC for violating news division standards. In 1980, she was named co-host of 2020, the primetime news magazine ABC created to challenge 60 Minutes. Walters used that show as a platform to expand her run of exclusive interviews, fiercely competing for scoops. She brought a lighter tone to her primetime specials, perched, perching on an elephant with James Stewart, riding behind Sylvester Stallone on a motorcycle, and getting a lap dance from Hugh Jackman. Walters was unapologetic about using every tool she had to score a big interview. She noted in her 28 autobiography audition that for all the discrimination she faced in journalism as a woman, it also had its advantages. A sought-after male subject chooses you to do the interview in the hope that somewhere along the line, the romantic side, or at least the flirtatious side, will surpass the professional, she wrote. In her later years, Walters remade herself as a successful producer of The View. The unpredictable back-and-forth of the hosts, particularly during Rosie O'Donnell's tumultuous tenure on the show, made it water-cooler fodder. It also became a regular stomping ground for, the, for political figures seeking to reach female viewers. Walters officially retired in 2014, but then quickly announced that she was coming out of retirement to do a special 2020 interview with the father of Elliot Roger, the UC Santa Barbara student who killed six people and wounded 14. She continued to do occasional specials. Her last on-air interview was with then-presidential candidate Donald Trump in 2015. She was rarely seen in public in recent years. Walters is survived by her daughter Jacqueline, whom she adopted with her second husband, theatrical producer Lee Goober. They divorced in 1976. Walters' third marriage to television producer Merv Adelson also ended in divorce. Over the years, she was romantically involved with numerous powerful men, including future Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan and U.S. Senator John Warner of Virginia. In her autobiography, Walters revealed that she 
uh, carried on a two-year affair in the 1970s with Edward R. Brooke, a married U.S. senator, the first black person elected to that body since Reconstruction. If she had any regret in her life, Walters told the Times it was that she never kept a diary. I still think, oh, the things I've heard and forgotten, she said. And that was Barbara Walters, 1929-2022, to TV News Pioneer Broke Into All Male Anchors Club by Mattia Gold and Meg James from the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, December 31st, 2022. Gold is a former Time Staff writer. Time Staff writer Steve Marble contributed to this report. All right, we have an Israel story here from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, December, uh, December 29th, 2022. Israel focusing on West Bank settlements. Incoming hardline government says expansion is a top priority. LGBTQ discrimination, okay. By Ilan Ben Zion. Jerusalem. Benjamin Netanyahu's incoming hardline Israeli government put West Bank settlement expansion at the top of its priority list Wednesday, vowing to legalize dozens of illegally built outposts and annex the occupied territory as part of its coalition deal with an ultra-nationalist allies. The coalition agreements, released a day before the government is to be sworn into office, also included language endorsing discrimination against LGBTQ people on religious grounds, contentious judicial reform, as well as generous stipends for ultra-Orthodox men who prefer to study instead of work. The package laid the groundwork for what is expected to be a stormy beginning for the country's most religious and right-wing government in history potentially putting it at odds with large parts of the Israeli public, rankling Israel's closest allies and escalating tensions with the Palestinians. What worries me the most is that these agreements change the democratic structure of what we know as the state of Israel, said Tomer Nauer, chief legal officer of the Movement for Quality Government in Israel, a watchdog group. One day we'll all wake up and Netanyahu is not going to be prime minister, but some of these changes will be irreversible. The guidelines were led by a commitment to advance and develop settlements in all parts of the land of Israel, including Judea and Samaria, the biblical names for the West Bank. Israel captured the West Bank in 1967 along with the Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem, territory the Palestinians seek for a future state. Israel has constructed dozens of Jewish settlements, homes, home to about 500,000 Israelis who live alongside about 2.5 million Palestinians. Most of the international community considers Israel's West Bank settlements illegal and an obstacle to peace with the Palestinians. The United States already has warned the incoming government against taking steps that could further undermine hopes for an independent Palestinian state. In response to a request for comment, the Palestinian leadership emphasized that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict can be resolved only through the establishment of a Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as its capital. Without a negotiated two-state solution, there will be no peace, security, or stability in the region, said Abul Abu Rodeine, a spokesman for the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. There was no immediate U.S. comment. Netanyahu is returning to power after he was ousted from office last year. 
His new government is made up of ultra-Orthodox parties, a far-right ultra-nationalist religious faction affiliated with the West Bank Settler Movement and his Likud party. In the coalition agreement between Likud and its ally, the religious Zionism party, Netanyahu pledged to legalize wildcat settlement outposts considered illegal even by the Israeli government. He also promises to annex the West Bank while choosing the timing and considering the national and international interests of the State of Israel. Such a move would alienate much of the world and give new fuel to critics who compare Israeli policies in the West Bank to apartheid in South Africa. The deal also grants favors to Itamar ben Givar, a far-right politician who will be in, cha uh, in charge of the National Police Force of the newly created post of National Security Minister. It also includes a commitment to expand and vastly increase government funding for the Israeli settlements in the divided West Bank city of Hebron, where a tiny ultra-nationalist Jewish community lives in heavily fortified neighborhoods amid tens of thousands of Palestinians. Ben Giver lived in a nearby settlement. The agreement also includes a clause pledging to change the country's anti-discrimination laws to allow businesses to refuse service to people because of a religious belief. The legislation drew outrage earlier this week when members of Ben Giver's party said the law could be used to deny services to LGBTQ people. Netanyahu has said he will not let the law pass, but nonetheless left the clause in the coalition agreement. Among its other changes is placing Bezalel Smotrich, a settler leader who heads the religious Zionism party, in a newly created ministerial post overseeing West Bank settlement policy. In an op-ed published in the Wall Street Journal, Smotrich said there would be no changing the political or legal status of the West Bank, indicating that the annexation would not immediately take place. <laughs> but he leveled criticism as the feckless military co uh, government that controls key aspects of life for Israeli settlements, such as construction, expansion, and infrastructure projects. Smotrich, who will also be finance minister, is expected to push to expand construction and funding for settlements while stifling Palestinian development in the territory. Netanyahu and his allies also agreed to push through changes meant to overhaul the country's legal system, specifically a bill that would allow parliament to overturn Supreme Court decisions with a simple majority of 61 lawmakers. Critics say the law will undermine government checks and balances and erode a critical democratic institution. They also say Netanyahu has a conflict of interest in pushing for the legal overhaul because he is currently on trial on corruption charges. Since the new government's intention is to weaken the Supreme Court, we're not going to have the court as an institution that would help guard the principles of freedom and equality. Yohanan Plesner, president of the Israel Democracy Institute, a Jerusalem think tank, told reporters. Two of Netanyahu's key ministers, incoming Interior Minister Arya Derry and Ben Giver, have criminal records. Derry, who served time in prison in 2002 for bribery, pleaded guilty to tax fraud this year. And Netanyahu and his coalition passed a law this week to allow him to serve as minister despite his conviction. Ben Giver was convicted in 2009 of inciting racism and supporting a terrorist organization. 
Israel's, Israel's President Isaac Herzog on Wednesday expressed deep concern about the incoming government and its positions on LGBTQ rights, racism, and the country's Arab minority in a rare meeting and, uh, with uh, Ben Giver, one of the coalition's most radical members. Herzog urged Ben Giver to calm the stormy winds. The government platform uh, also mentioned that the loosely defined rules governing holy sites, including Jerusalem's flashpoint shrine known to Jews as the Temple Mount and to Muslims as the Al-Aqiza Mosque compound, would remain the same. Ben-Givir and other religious Zionism politicians had called for the status quo to be changed to allow Jewish prayer at the site, a move that risked inflaming tensions with the Palestinians. The status of the site is the emotional epicenter of the decades-long Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In an interview with CNN published Wednesday, King Abdullah II of Jordan warned that his country would respond if Israel crossed red lines and tried to change the status of the sacred Jerusalem site over which Jordan has custodianship. If people want us to get want to get into a conflict with us, we're quite prepared, he said. That was Israel focusing on West Bank settlements by Elon Ben Zion from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, December 29, 2022. Ben Zion writes for the Associated Press. AP writer Isabel Debris contributed to this report. All right, now we go to an opinion article here from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, December 31st, 2022. Finding peace in a desert of ghosts. In a year when anti-Semitism flowed freely, light melancholy centers me, telling me bad times get better, by Todd Goldberg. Time moves differently in the desert this time of year. The sun slips behind Mount San Jacinto around 4, and its shadow slides across the Coachella Valley, cloaking everything in a hazy light. Other locals typically avoid coming uh, to downtown Palm Springs during the holiday season, but I cherish these moments there when a cal- the calendar has narrowed to a precious few days. It feels like the desert invariably warms in the weeks before the new year, the air filled with the scent of fall-blooming roses. A shift in the breeze is often enough to draw me to the glittery streets that are crowded with architecture of the past and the people of today. There is something almost dreamlike in in finding myself in the same place as each year eventually falls away. Downtown Palm Springs is alive with tourists, all moving with the sun-drunk slowness of vacation. When you live in a desert, res- when you live in a resort city, you get used to this, uh, this uh, stop action. Even though you never stop being slightly annoyed by it, and my family has been here since the late 1950s. There were some of the early Jews who settled in, the, in Canyon Country Club, one of the few places where someone with my last name could belong. Uh, decades later, my grandfather, Papa Sai, would drive me through town, point out the window at various enclaves, telling me never live there. There was no malice, just a simple declaration. He'd found his place. I would find mine. It just wouldn't be behind that gate or in that mountain cove. The desert is loath to tear anything down, so its buildings of Jewish oppression still stand. True groups go through them during modernism week. 
I've thought of this often this year when anti-Semitism flowed openly from the Internet to politicians and celebrities to real estate, the real estate agent showing my mother-in-law a new home who told her she could Jew down the cellar as my wife held me back from saying something I might regret. Or might not. What's true in the desert is that depending on where you stood, if you were to close your eyes in 1962 and open them in these last moments of 2022, you might not know the difference physically or intellectually. Those might not seem like the memories uh, to hold close, but the reality is that my grandparents came here for a reason. They felt at peace. Even after dementia fell, Papa sighed, he often still thought he was on his patio staring into Andreas Canyon or the Black Nine, each place a small mitzvah. I'm the only one in the family to have inherited that sense of peace, the last of us living here, walking downtown on a warm December day, reckoning with the ghosts. I think it's because light melancholy centers me in a way very few things do. It tells me bad times get better. It reminds me that my petty yearnings make me small, that I am capable of forming, of forgiving in much the same way my grandparents must have been in order to live through a single day on these streets. I walk into a tourist trap shop. Nearly everything says Palm Springs on it in a retro 1950s font. Years ago, this was a poorly lit bookstore called Bookland word was, Truman Capote and Herman Welk used to come in to buy out-of-town newspapers and retired uh, Chicago outfit gangster Tony Accardo liked their crossword puzzle section. I never saw any of them there, but where there are now racks of t-shirts, I could see my 12-year-old self thumbing through paperbacks of my idols. Running my fingers over the words of Robert B. Parker, Donald Westlake, and Elmar Leonard, Hanukkah money burning a hole in my pocket, Papa side double parked on Papa Can Pump Canyon in his yellow convertible top down, hand resting on his side mirror, sunglasses on a slick of suntan lotion spread across his nose, shirt unbuttoned halfway down his chest. How are you today? There's a salesperson, a young woman standing a few feet away from me, straightening some shirts. Wistful. Is that good or bad? I gestured around the store. This used to be a bookstore. I used to sit right here and read books. Is that right, she says. Is that right? I walk back outside. Look up and down the block. The shadow of Mount San Jacinto has darkened the street. Headlights flicker on. The temperature has dropped below 70, enough to send a chill through me. Maybe Bookland had been on the next block. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe if I wait long enough, my grandfather will pull up and will cruise down the canyon again, letting go of it all. That was Finding Peace in a Desert of Ghosts by Todd Goldberg, from the Opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Saturday, December 31st, 2022. Todd Goldberg is the author, most recently, of The Low Desert Gangster Stories. He directs the Low Residency MFA program in creative writing and writing for the performing arts at UC Riverside. Let's go on now to some entertainment news and a movie review from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times. Thursday, December 29th, 2022, more than white noise. Noah Baumbach rises to the challenge of adopting the classic novel by Dun DeLillo by Justin Chang, film critic.
wet white noise. Noam Baumbach's jittery and inventive adaptation of Don DeLillo's 1985 novel begins with what you might call a love letter to cinema. We've had a lot of those recently, but this one, a college lecture on car crashes in American movies, is appreciably sharper, funnier, and more specific than most. As his students watch a montage of fiery vehicular explosions, Professor Murray J. Suskin, a wonderful Don Cheadle, implores them to look past the violence and see the spirit of optimism and enterprise pulsing underneath. There's a constant upgrading of tools, skills, a meeting of challenges, he marvels. The movie breaks away from complicated human passions to show us something elemental, something loud and fiery, head on. Baumbach, a specialist in complicated human passions, appears to have taken the professor's enthusiasm to heart. Before long, he'll stage his own elemental pileup, an oil tanker truck T-bones on a freight train, sending its chemical cargo flying everywhere, every which way and igniting a conflagration that belches deadly black smoke into the sky. There's nothing optimistic about what happens next, but the moment of collision is executed with undeniable gusto. Bambach does for a moment seem like the proverbial kid playing with a big honkin' train set. Here and elsewhere, in white noise, he happily applies himself to the upgrading of tools and skills, and to the meeting of the formidable, some would say foolhardily challenged before him. Delilo's novel, bursting with theories of both prescient and otherwise about consumerism, addiction, environmental decay, misinformation overload, and the universal, if also un uniquely, American fear of death has long been deemed unfilmable, as novels of ideas are reflexively assumed to be. In this case, there's not only the danger of mishandling the author's satirical targets or the icy precision of his latex glove sentences, but also the risk of approximately, um, approximating them too closely of looking them, uh, locking them away in a remote, often fondly nostalgicized 80s moment and dra draining them of their corrosive, unsettling power. Bambach does not quote surmount, uh, does not quite surmount this obstacle. An eerie climax and one pretty good uh, jump scare aside, the terror here belongs more to the characters and their era than it does to us and ours. But his affection for the novel produces its own warm, counter, countervailing energy. Excessive reverence has killed many a well-meaning adaptation, but this white noise at once wildly mercurial and fastidiously controlled somehow winds up triumphing over its own death. It's too full of life and also too funny, unruly, mischievous, and disarmingly sweet to really do otherwise. Here, in the domestically content but existentially paranoid flesh, are Jack Gladney, Adam Driver, Pounchy, and his wife, Babette, Greta Gerwig, Curly, raising four kids, three from past marriages, in a college town whose heart is its campus and whose soul is its supermarket. Lal Crowley's grainy, textured, widescreen images shot on 35mm anamorphic film steer us through the messy living spaces and immaculate grocery aisles of a postmodern Brady Bunch, 
where boxes of Tide and cans of Coca-Cola gleam out at us with an almost otherworldly scene. Just Goncourt's production design nails the 80s vibe and branding perfectly. We also spent some time with Jack's professor co colleagues, including a Kurt Jody Turner-Smith and a delightful Andre Benjamin, as they hold intellectual court never more mesmerizingly than when Jack and Murray deliver a dual lecture comparing and contrasting the early lives of Hitler and Elvis. Jack is one of the country's leading professors of Hitler's studies, which makes his limited grasp of German his most embarrassing secret at least initially. Here it may be worth noting the presence of at least two marvelous German actors, Lars Edinger and the veteran Barbara Stokawa, both perfectly cast in crucial roles. Babette, who teaches posture classes for the elderly, is hiding her own deep dark secret, namely the pills she keeps popping when she thinks no one's looking. But except for their adorable toddler, Wilder, played by Dean and Henry Moore, their kids notice everything and delight in challenging parental authority, especially Babbitt's stubborn, concerned daughter Denise, a terrific uh, Raffi Cassidy, and Jack's son Heinrich, uh, Sam Nivola, a fount of pessimistic data who's the first one to notice that deadly black cloud headed their way. Until that point, White Noise has found a pleasurable sweet spot between the Bumbachian and the Delilioesque. Much of the techy, disorienting domestic banter with its volleys of data and non-sequitur factholds uh, come straight from the novel. Even as the disorienting screwball rhythms, the editing is by Matthew Hanlon, and the overlapping lines of dialogue hark back to the director's earlier comedies like, Mer the, like the Merowitz stories and Mistress America. But one but uh, once its uh, famous airborne toxic event is set in motion and the entire town is forced to evacuate, the movie, like Danny Elfman's wondrously nimble score, kicks into overdrive. Soon Jack, Babette, and the kids are on the run and their station wagon with death looming in the rear view mirror and some vintage Spielberg riffs on the road ahead. The pitch-perfect mim uh, mimicry of 80s action-thriller clichés, just count how many garbage cans get knocked over by cars screeching in reverse, is something only a contemporary retooling of a retro story could have pulled off. That knowing playfulness is part of the movie's charm. So is the spectacle of Baumbach, a master of intimate, small-scaled comedy, embracing the conventions of the big-budget apocalyptic thriller, complete with lethal lightning storms and unexpected river crews and endless chaotic traffic jams. But Bombach doesn't stop there. He may faithfully adhere to the novel's three-act structure, the rhythm of its many short self-contained chapters proves more elusive, but its shrewdest and most suitably postmodern gesture is to offer up a highly elastic palimpsest of allusions, genres, and styles. Primarily a domestic romantic drama and a satire of academia before it becomes a full-blown disaster epic. White Noise also morphs in its climactic stretch into a seedy motel room noir, a Monty Python sketch, and supremely an LCD sound system dance musical. Don't skip the closing credits. The stylistic verve can sometimes feel liberating 
and inspired rejoinder to the clinical perfection of Delilo's prose. And sometimes it can feel like too much, to the point of becoming absorbed and lost within the story's white noise barrage. The marketing slogans, the academic bull sessions, the pointless government directives when all hell breaks loose. Maybe that's the point. For Delilo purists and scholars, surely the movie's least forgiving audience, Bombeck's attempts at narrative comprehension will seem especially glaring. He has streamlined the, bu uh, the book's cast, gone as Babbitt's gun-supplying dad, and trimmed or removed some of its choicest aphorisms. In trying to both preserve and open up a much-canonized text, he sometimes falls into an all-too-familiar adaptive compromise. Some of Jack's Morden first-person insights on the page have been reassigned to other characters on the screen, a shift for which Driver's performance compensates to no small degree. He's entirely believable as the outwardly impressive but inwardly insecure academic, despite to maintain, desperate to maintain a sunny outlook even under fast darkening skies. Jack may be the most ridiculous of the glaringly imperfect spouses Driver has played recently in Annette and Marriage Story, and also the most redeemable. Gerwig is no less movingly misguided as Babette, who, like her husband, but through more extreme measures, tries to sublimate fears, both rational and irrational, of impending doom. We're a fragile character surrounded by hostile facts, Babette notes, tweaking without materially changing a sentiment from the novel. The absurdity of these characters is inseparable from their pathos, and the director's obvious affection for them and for his two lead actors make them more affecting still. The warmth of feeling that, suff uh, that suffuses the movie's final moments may not be the most faithful salute to Delilo, but it is very much the point of this white noise. That was More Than White Noise by Justin Chang, film critic. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, December 29th, 2022. It's called White Noise in English and German with English subtitles. Rated R for Brief Violence and Language. Running time, 2 hours 16 minutes. Playing at the Bay Theater in Pacific Palisades. And starts and it's now streaming on Netflix. Alright, and here is something from comicbook.com. Sarah Michelle Gellar weighs in on Buffy Reboot by James Jurak, December 30th, 2022. Buffy the Vampire Slayer is one of the most iconic shows of all time, and it was announced in 2018 that a reboot was in the works with the original series creator, Joss Whedon. At the same time, it was revealed that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. alum Monica Owusu-Breen would write the script and serve as the showrunner. However, in August of this year, executive producer Gail Berman appeared on the Hollywood Reporter's TV's Top 5 podcast via TV Line and said the Buffy reboot is now on pause. If the show ever comes to be, there's one person who isn't interested in being a part of it, and that's the show's original star, Sarah Michelle Gellar. I'm not, Gellar told SFX Magazine via MovieWet. I'm very proud of the show that we created, and it doesn't need to be done. We'll wrap that up. I'm all for them continuing the story, but because there's uh, the story of female empowerment. I love the way the show was left. 
Every girl who has the power can have the power. It's set up perfectly for someone else to have the power. But like I said, the metaphors of Buffy were the horrors of adolescence. I think I look young, but I'm not an adolescent. Recently, some of the cast members from Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off Angel had been shedding light on what it was really like behind the scenes. Creator Joss Whedon started uh, to come under fire after Justice League star Ray Fisher accused him of mistreatment on the movie set. Fisher's decision to come forward inspired Buffy and Angel's Charisma Carpenter to do the same as she wrote a statement that claimed Whedon abused his power on numerous occasions. The post caused an array of actors from Buffy and Angel to offer their support and share their own experiences. Geller, Michelle Trachtenberg, Amber Benson, Eliza Dusku, J. August Richards, Anthony Heald, and more have all made public statements in support of Carpenter. Recently, Geller took part in the Rap's Power of Storyteller, Storytelling Producing Roundtable and mentioned the toxic Buffy set. For so long I was on the set on a set that I think was known for being an extremely toxic, toxic male set. And so that was ingrained in my head that uh, that was what all the sets were like, and that women were pitted against each other. That if women became friends, then we became too powerful, so you had to keep that down, Geller explained. And now that I've had this opportunity to work with so many more women and men that support women as well, I realize how easy an experience it can be. But, unfortunately, we're still in that place where all of those departments, a lot of times, need to, be, need to be women for us to have a voice. That was Sarah Michelle Geller Weighs In on Buffy Reboot by Jamie Jurak from comicbook.com for Friday, December 30th, 2022. And disclosure, comic book is owned by CBS Interactive. A division of Paramount. Sign up for Paramount Plus by clicking here. Now let's start reading some articles from the LA Jewish Home, December 15th through the 28th, 2022, Volume 1, Number 5. And we start off with this one Gedoli Torah Engage in Unique Pilpil Far with Shaz Yedin Avrahim Geonim. Rabbi Eliezer Sand Sandler. The annual Faraheran of the entire Shas and Siyom Hashim gatherings of the Kolel Shas Yedin Network has ev have evolved into a tradition demonstrating incredible, detailed, and broad Torah scholarship. The video recordings are eagerly anticipated for viewing worldwide by Talmide Hachomim and Yeshiva Vachim alike. www Shasidin.com. Until his last year, the Avrahim Geonim would cram into the home of the late Nasi Sar Hatora, Maran Hagon, Hagon, Hagadol Harab, Haim Kavanitsky Stickle, where he would fur, uh, further them extensively, and which he said gave him great pleasure. The lineup of the Geonim Shitla at this year's Siam in Beit Shemesh, who tested the metal of the Avrahim Geonim last week, are a veritable who's who of Torah learning. Maran Harav Baruch Mordecai Ezrahi, Maran Hav Itamar Garbaz, Harav Yaakov Adis, 
Harav Emelik Biederman, Harav Shimuel Yaakov Landau, and Harav Eliyahu Stefanski. Among those who graced the, the, the days was Arab Mordecai Sturm, Rob of Hehal Dovid, Lawrence, New York. The Ponza Rob Harav Haganon, Abraham Eisen Shitila, founder of Shas Yidin 14 years ago, started this tradition to give honor to the Avrahim Geonim who studied at Shas Yidin. It is also to give the supporters of this great and holy project the opportunity to see close up the fruits of their support month after month and to develop more and more Avahim Geonim who have a remarkable knowledge of every word of the Talmud, Rashi and Tosavos. The Gedole Torah has come to look forward to engaging with the Avahim Geonim of Shas Yadin. Maran Harav Baruch Mordecai Ezrahi Rosh Yeshivas, Ateris, Yisrael, and a senior member of Motus Gedolei HaTorah, has a grandson at Shas Yedin. Despite his advanced age, weak state of health, and in the effort and the effort needed to attend, Rab Ezrahi came to Beit Shemesh and climbed the stairs to the days on, sta- on the stage. Yet as he began to debate the Avrahim Geonim and discuss specific and complicated sections of the Talmud, any hint of tiredness or weakness vanished and his face shone with excitement and joy at the incredible knowledge flowing from the Avrahim Geonim. He became even more enthused when he asked questions on sugyos, issues or subjects, and kodeshim that required careful and deep reasoning. He was simply amazed to hear how the Avrahim Geonim managed to quickly and easily respond to all these questions with clear answers. Hopefully, my portion should be with, uh, with yours, said Rab Ezrahi with much emotion. I am sure that in heaven there must be a tumultuous response to these moments, with a hundred Avrahim Geonim who know all the words of the Shas. In truth, one should be jealous of you for this great feeling, as you are able to study and contemplate Shas the whole year through, and how it lives with you before your very eyes. The fact that there is a group of incredible Talmidal Hachomim, like you, puts the entire people of Israel on a different level. It obliges us all to express our great appreciation to the Pazna Rav, who came up with this, this idea of establishing such an institution, and he has truly given the Jewish people of Israel a gift that is beyond compare. Maran, Rosh Yeshiva's Orho's Torah, Hagan, Harav Itamar Garbuz enjoyed the lively interaction with the Avrakim Geonim for an extended session and tested them through the length and breadth of Shas and expressed his amazement at the incredible knowledge of the Avrakim Geonim. His questions focused on all-encompassing knowledge of concepts and issues. For example, how many disputes between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon are there at Mahesh Shabbos? The Avrahim Geonim noted not only listed them, but added many halachic references regarding differences between Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda, as well as the comments of Tosfos throughout the length of Maseches Shabbos. And then they branch off into the differences that apply in Mashes Erovin, that also deals extensively with the laws of Shabbos. 
He peppered the Avrahim Geonim with numerous such questions, addressing groups of five at a time, before opening the questions to others. The answers flowed forth at an amazing pace, much to the pleasure of the participants and that of the attendees from abroad who were excited at the incredible standard of Torah knowledge they were witnessing. After an extensive session with Avrahim Geonim with great enthusiasm, Rav Garbuz exclaimed that it was a great honor and zechus for him to have the opportunity to engage with such Avrahim Geonim in Torah learning. In you, the Jewish people are to be blessed, he said. It is impossible to estimate or to describe the greatness of the zechus of those who support this holy project uh, that raises the grandeur of Israel and the Holy Torah in such an amazing faction. The Mashpia Hagadol, Rabbi Melech Biederman, burst out with a clarion call. You see seated before you a hundred Avrahim Geonim who know the entire Shas, literally a hundred holy Aranei Kodesh, holy Torah arcs before our eyes. How immense is the Zechus of the donors and supporters? Through support for this cause, your merit and destiny will be enhanced for the good and for the success in all matters, both material and spiritual. Uh, Harav Shmuel Yaakov Landau, Dayan, and Rav of the Bell's base Midrash, Yad Cohen, in Beit Shemesh, has a son-in-law among the Avrahim Geonim. He debated with the Avrahim Geonim at length through a number of sugyos. Among them was the sugya dealing with a person cannot transfer or sell something that does not yet exist, such as futures, etc. He also dealt with the question of whether a person may appoint a messenger to perform a mission regarding something that does not yet exist and other matters in this regard. Nothing short of spellbinding was the give and take between Harav Yaakov, Aedis, and the Avrahim Geonim began with words of encouragement and then launched into debate on sugyos through shas. He demonstrated incredible bakus and was just, it was as if the entire shas was an open book in front of his eyes. He just could not hold back from the torrent of discussion with the Avrahim Geonim and continued to speak with them at length as his face shone with the joy of the Torah. And the Avrahim Geonim loved the intensity of the give and take. After Rav Adis came away with the deep impression of the scholarship of the Avrahim Geonim. He turned to the donors who were watching the give and take with unconcealed enjoyment. He said to them, I have an idea for you. If any of you was thinking of making a donation to Shaz Yedin, you should double it. And you can add a few zeros. You should know that Zehus of supporting such a great and holy project is indeed significant. And it's not a simple, a simple matter. Such support obligates the Avrahim Geonim as well. You have to pray for the donors and supporters and that they should be blessed with all that is good through the power of the Torah and your tefilos. After the lengthy Farahan, there was a heartfelt and inspirational Ma'arav led by Hara the Adis. This was followed by the Siyom Shasim, each of the Avrahim Geonim had concluded Shas for the year. Each of the Ko- Kolal wives was personally presented with a cash-filled envelope in appreciation of their unstinting support for their husband's dedication to the very demanding steady regimen at Shas Yedin. A sumptuous dinner followed by the Kovod HaTorah and in honor of those who support Torah, accompanied by song and music by Aaron Samet. 
all present agreed that the incredible engagement Farah and Siyomim combined to be a Torah happening to remember. There was Gedolei Torah engaged in unique Pilpul Farah with Shas Yadin Avrahim Gionim for Rabbi Eliezer Sandler. Okay, we go now to the section, The Week in News. And we start off with this one. Israel, 2 million tourists. Tourists have been flocking to the Holy Land this year. More than 2 million tourists visited Israel from January through October this year, and many more are expected. By the end of 2022, Israel's tourism ministry predicts that 2.5 million visitors will have come to the Holy Land in 2022. Ministry figures that... Figures last month showed that some 2,078,000 tourists arrived in Israel in the first 10 months of the year. Should these continue at the same rate in November and December? The ministry is said it expects to record between 2.4 to 2.6 million arrivals by the end of the year. These figures are a far cry from 2019's figures when Israel welcomed some 4.5 million tourists, its strongest year on record. But the numbers show promising signs of recovery for inbound tourism. Israel only reopened its skies in March, lifting most COVID-related travel restrictions. Hotel industry figures also point to signs of recovery. According to the Central Bureau of Statistics, 19.3 million hotel stays were recorded between January and October this year, compared to 21.8 million over the same period in 2019. To boost tourism recovery efforts and meet demand, Israel has been <clears throat> steadily working to grow and to diversify the number of hotel rooms. The tourism ministry believes there is a shortage of internationally rated luxury hotels and also of modern cheaper hotels at lower price points. Hotel ownership in Israel at present is largely confined to seven domestic groups, Atlas Hotels, Brown Hotels, Dan Hotels, uh, Fatal Hotel Group, Ezra Hotel, Prima Hotels, and Orchid Hotels. While a number of leading global hotel chains have limited presence that the tourism ministry would like to grow. This year, the tourism ministry expects to complete the delivery of some 4,500 new hotel rooms, with another 4,000 plus scheduled for next year. These are substantial increases to some 57,000 existing hotel rooms across the country, with large numbers of rooms located in Jerusalem and Eilat. Twelve new hotels are due to open in 2023, adding to the 27 new hotels scheduled to start receiving guests in the coming months. In total, 51 hotels are in the planning pipeline, as Israel hopes to more than double its pre-COVID tourist numbers to 10 million a visitor, 10 million, 10 a million visitors by 2030. That was Israel, 2 million tourists, author unknown. Here's another one. Tel Aviv is the world's third most expensive city, author unknown. <clears throat> Last year, Tel Aviv was crowned the world's most expensive city. This year, the Israeli city lost that ignoble title as it was toppled by New York City and Singapore in the Economist's annual list of least and most expensive cities in the world was published last week. Tel Aviv cracked the top five in the 2020s list before leaping to the top a year later, mostly due to NIS's strong showing in the foreign exchange market compared to the euro and the U.S. dollar. 
the British magazines ranked close to 200 cities across the globe based on the pricing of hundreds of individual items and services offered in, the, in those cities. These can, uh, these can include a McRoyal meal at the international fast food chain McDonald's, one kilo of apples, and a month's rest for a two-bedroom apartment, which is all then compared to the purchasing power of the city's average salary. In turn, even if a certain service is more expensive in some cities, the actual cost of living is measured and ranked in proportion to the average wage in the examined city. One of the metrics measured by the econo economist that helped to see Tel Aviv rise to the top last year was the cost of an average family vehicle, an item that was introduced to the magazine statistical database used to compile its list. Tel Aviv is ranked as one of the most expensive cities in this parameter. At the bottom of the list, some of the world's least expensive cities include the Iranian capital of Tehran, Tunis, Tashkent, Tripoli, and Syria's Damascus. That was Tel Aviv is world's third most expensive city. And from the national news, Chinese hackers stole $20 million in COVID benefits. Author unknown. Hackers linked to the Chinese government stole at least $20 million in U.S. COVID relief benefits, including small business administration loans and unemployment insurance funds in over a dozen states, according to the Secret Service. The theft of taxpayer funds by Chengdu-based hacking group known as APT41 is the first instance of pandemic fraud tied to foreign state-sponsored cyber criminals in the, that the U.S. government has acknowledged publicly but may just be the tip of the iceberg, according to U.S. law enforcement officials and cybersecurity experts. It would be crazy to think this group didn't target all 50 states, said Roy Dotson, National Pandemic Fraud Recovery Coordinator for the Secret Service, who also acts as a liaison to other federal agencies probing COVID fraud. The Secret Service said that there are more than a thousand ongoing investigations involving transnational and domestic criminal actors defrauding public benefits that, and that APT41 is a notable player. As soon as state governments began dispersing COVID unemployment funds in 2020, cybercriminals began stiffening off a significant percentage. The Labor Department Office of Inspector General has reported an improper payment up rate of roughly nearly 20% of roughly 20% for the 872.5 billion dollars in federal pandemic unemployment funds, though the true cost of the fraud is likely higher. Administration officials from multiple agencies say. An in-depth analysis of four states showed 42.4% of pandemic benefits were paid improperly in the first six months. The Department Watchdog reported to Congress last week. A Heritage Foundation analysis of the Labor Department data estimated excess unemployment benefits payments of more than $350 billion from April 2020 to May 2021. Whether it's $350, $400, or $500 billion at this point, the horse is out of the barn said Linda Miller, the former Deputy Executive Director of the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, the federal government's COVID relief fraud watchdog. The Secret Service said in a statement that it considers APT-41 a Chinese state-sponsored cyber threat group that is highly adept at conducting espionage missions and financial crimes for a personal gain. That was Chinese hackers stole $20 million in COVID benefits from National News, author unknown, 
This final one is called That's Odd News. Simply simple yet complex. Author unknown. Ever tried to solve a Rubik's Cube? It's easier said than done. But one good piece of advice is to break the process down into steps according to the cube's inventor. Problem solving is a very basic activity of the human mind, and if a problem is complex, you need to divide the problem into smaller elements, said Ernio Rubik, who invented the cube in 1974. For me, the cube represents what freedom means. Freedom is never endless, he said during a recent visit to New York. It lets you do what is necessary to achieve your goal. Rubik has used the cube as a teaching tool in Cold War-era Hungary. Now there are more than 450 million cubes sold. The original 3x3 Rubik's has more than 43 quintillion. That's more than 43 trillion possible configurations. But the principles behind the cube have been fashioned for 2x2, 4x4, and 5x5 cubes. A board game called Rubik's Race, a pyramid, and a tower, among others. It took 36 years after the invention of the toy for anyone to come up with an answer for the maximum number of moves to solve it. In 2010, a group of mathematicians and computer programmers proved that any Rubik's Cube can be solved in 20 moves. Practice cube solvers can complete a Rubik's Cube in a matter of seconds. The current world record holders solved a cube in 3.45 seconds. Rubik was a building was a budding artist who hoped to become a sculptor or a painter before he studied architecture. He got a degree in architecture at Budapest University of Technology and became a teacher in the interior design department at the Acad Academy of Applied Arts and Crafts in Budapest. Rubik regularly used physical models and materials to teach concepts in construction and design. As our body needs some kind of exercise, the brain needs that kind of exercise as well, he says. Thus was born an elegant teaching tool named the Magic Cube. I tried to make it as simple as possible because I thought the task itself is complicated enough, he says. You don't need to complicate anymore, he noted. One of the main keys of the cube is the contradiction between complexity and simplicity, Rubik says. On one hand, the cube is a very simple form, and on the other hand, the potential of the variation of movement is so complicated, so simple, yet so complex. That was Simple Yet Complex from the That's Odd News section, author unknown, and those are all from the The Week in News section. All right, now let's read some articles from JewishJournal.com, starting with this one. Google apologizes for defining Jew as bargaining with someone in a miserly or petty way by Aaron Bandler, December 27, 2022. Google issued an apology for temporarily defining the word Jew as a way to bargain with someone in a miserly or petty way. Fox News reported that a Google search described the origins of the word as a reference to old stereotypes associating Jewish people with trading and money lending. That definition was the top search result until 1 a.m. Eastern Time on December 27th, according to Fox. Various Twitter users excoriated Google over the offensive definition. Stop Antisemitism tweeted that the definition was unacceptable, but did give Google credit for appropriately revising the definition. Seriously, at Google, there were no other verbs you could have used? 
Why promote anti-Semitic tropes? Tweeted human rights lawyer Arsen Ostrovsky, who heads the International Legal Forum. Siema Kordestani, West Coast Director of the European Leadership Network, tweeted to Google CEO Sundar Pinchay, In 2021, Urea signed, instead of firing, your head of diversity strategy, who said Jews have an insatiable appetite for war. Until a few minutes ago, the following bigoted definition of Jew appeared as your first search result. Why? Former New York Democratic Assemblyman Doug Heiken, who heads the Americans Against Anti-Semitic Watchdog, tweeted, At Google has some serious explaining to do about how it ended up presenting an anti-Semitic definition of a Jew. There's no good excuse for such an org to casually feature Jew hatred in its search results. We demand accountability, new verb, Google, to indulge in Jew hate. Google's search liaison tweeted, Our apologies about the offensive definition. Google licenses definitions from third-party dictionary experts. We only display offensive definitions by default if they are the main meaning of a term, the tweet readed. As this is not the case here, we have blocked this and passed along feedback to the partner for further review. This article has been updated. That was Google apologizes for defining Jew as bargaining with someone in a miserly or petty way by Aaron Bandler, December 27, 2022. All right, here is another. Posters glorifying Palestinian martyrs found in L.A. by Aaron Bandler, December 27, 2022. Various posters glorifying Palestinian martyrs were found in Los Angeles on December 6. The Palestinian youth movement announced in an Instagram post that they had put the posters around Los Angeles, Orange County, and the Inland Empire. Some posters were found on Wilshire Boulevard. The posters stated, Glory to our martyrs, and featured the faces of various Palestinians that were killed by Zionist forces. One such face was Shireen Abu Akleh, the Al Jazeera journalist who was shot and killed while covering an Israel Defense Forces raid in Jenin in May. The State Department announced in July that their investigation concluded that the bullet that killed Abu Akli likely came from the idea, but was probably unintentional. However, damage to the bullet prevented a clear conclusion. A separate CNN investigation, on the other hand, concluded that the IDF had intentionally fired at Abu Abu Akli. Other faces included on the poster included Oday al-Tamimi and Tamar al-Kilani, who are both members of the Lion's Den terror group, according to the Anti-Defamation League. The ADL listed Al-Kilani as a founding member of the terror group. The poster also included faces of those killed during clashes between the IDF and Palestinians in the West Bank, such as Omar Mana. Mana was killed on December 5th when the IDF were executing a raid to arrest three members of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. The IDF said at the time, that during the operation, suspects threw stones, Molotov cocktails, and explosives at the troops who responded by shooting. The posters on Wilshire Boulevard were taken down on December 21st. Jewish groups denounced the posters in statements to the journal. There's nothing wrong with mourning those who die from the tragic and ongoing violence between Palestinians and Israelis, stand with the CEO and co-founder Roz Rothstein said. However, the anti-Israel poster includes and glorifies terrorists such as 
uh, former Palestinian Islamic Jihad commander Farouk Salameh. It implies Israel alone is to blame, ignoring that groups like PIG seek to destroy Israel and trap both peoples in an endless cycle of suffering and conflict. Hopefully one day Palestinian leaders will accept that Israel is in the region to stay, so both peoples can focus on building a better future together. Simon Weisenthal Center Associate Dean and Director of Global Social Action Agenda Rabbi Abraham Cooper also said, Importing a culture of death where children are brainwashed to believe that martyrs are not mere cannon fodder for genocide-seeking Hamas and corrupt pay-to-slay Jews, uh, Palestinian Authority teaches youngsters here to hate Jews, is a disaster in the making. Their martyrs are murderers, Stop Anti-Semitism Executive Director Leora Rez said. It's always disturbing to see people idolizing terrorists like this. American Jewish Committee Los Angeles Regional Director Richard S. Hirschhout said, While Jews across Southern California draw strength and inspiration from the enduring power of Hanukkah, we are reminded of the darker forces that would deny us the right to our ancestral home. How unfortunate and sad that these young activists have shown their hand as uncompromising rejectionists and glorifying the violence. The all-too-familiar, all a pattern for those who seek peaceful resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Still, we will wait for genuine voices of peace to emerge. The Palestinian youth movement did not respond to the journal's request for comment. That was Posters Glorifying Palestinian Martyrs Found in L.A. by Aaron Bandler, December 27, 2022. And we have this one. GOP Congressman-elect Santos caught lying about being Jewish by Brian Fishback, December 27, 2022. Republican Congressman-elect George Santos has been caught in a web of lies and embellishments on his resume and biography over the last two weeks. Among them, Santos claimed to be Jewish. And now Santos says that he never purposed to be a Jew. I never claimed to be Jewish, Santos said in an interview with the New York Post. I am Catholic. Because I learned my maternal family had a Jewish background, I said I was Jew-ish. The Republican Jewish Coalition CEO Matt Brooks released a statement today addressing Santos's lie. We are very disappointed in Congressman-elect Santos. He deceived us and misrepresented his heritage. In public comments, and to us personally, he previously claimed to be Jewish. He has begun his tenure in Congress on a very wrong note. He will not be welcome at any future RJC event. In response to, on Twitter, the Jewish Democratic Council of America called on the RJC to urge Santos not to be sworn into office at all. If at RJC had any integrity, they would join us in ensuring there's no place for Santos' lies in Congress by calling on him not to take the oath of office on January 3rd. In a snapshot of Santos' campaign website by Wayback Machine on April 27, 2022, the first line of his biography read the following. My story is the story of New York. I'm a first-generation American whose parents immigrated from Brazil seeking the American dream. Opportunities to work hard, play by the rules, and achieve success. Unfortunately, the opportunities once available to my parents are becoming harder to achieve for my generation and our country. By October 21, 2022, his biography on the campaign website had been altered to read, George Santos is a first-generation American born in Queens, New York. 
George's grandparents fled Jewish persecution in Ukraine, settled in Belgium, and again fled persecution during World War II. They were able to settle in Brazil, where his mother was born. His father, who comes from the Angolan roots, was also born in Brazil. Both his mother and father legally immigrated to the United States in search of the American dream, where they began their new lives on the foundation of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Currently, the opening lines of Santos' campaign website biography makes no reference to his grandparents allegedly fleeing the horrors of the Holocaust. George Santos is the son of immigrants who grew up in a basement apartment in Jackson Heights, Queens. Both his mother and father legally immigrated to the United States in search of the American dream, where they began their family on the, the foundation of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Jewish Daily Forward reported on a campaign document circulated by Santos to Jewish and pro-Israel leaders where Santos claimed that he was a proud American Jew. The line in the document read, As a proud American Jew, I have been to Israel numerous times from educational, business, and leisurely trips. Santos's claims of being Jewish are just one of statements uh, by Santos about his background that have been called into question. Among them, Santos claimed to have worked at both Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. Both companies denied he ever worked for them. He claimed to have graduated from Baruch College and took classes at New York University. The New York Times reported that neither school could verify Santos's claims. Santos said that he lost four employees at the mass shooting in Orlando's Pulse nightclub in 2016. He later admitted that they were going to be coming to work for the company that I was starting up in Orlando. My sins here are embellishing my resume. I'm sorry, Santos told the New York Post in response to the allegations of lies. Santos is also the first openly gay Republican to be elected to a first term in the House of Representatives. 24 years ago, Wisconsin Democrat Tammy Baldwin became the first openly gay member of the House to be elected to a first term. In 2012, Baldwin became the first openly gay U.S. Senator to be elected to a first term. She is currently serving her second term. In 2020, Santos, unsuccess Santos unsuccessfully ran for New York's 3rd district, uh, district seat, losing to incumbent Representative Thomas Sozzi by a 12.5% margin. Sozzi did not run for re-election this year, opting to run for governor of New York and eventually losing to incumbent Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul. The 34-year-old Santos was elected to New York's 3rd Congressional District seat on November 8 of this year, defeating Democrat Robert Zimmerman by 8.2 percentage margin. The district is primarily in western Nassau County, or Long Island, from Oyster Bay to Great Neck, strengthening, stretching west to include a small section of northern Queens. At the time of this writing, there have been no official statements from the only two Jewish Republicans in Congress who would be serving with Santos. Incumbent Representative David Kustoff, Republican of Tennessee, and Representative-elect Max L. Miller, Republican of Ohio. On November 19, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, touted that having three Jewish Republicans in the House would be the most in 24 years. With Max Miller in Ohio, George Santos in New York, and you have David Gustav from Tennessee getting re-elected, do you realize we have the largest Republican Jewish caucus in more than 25 years? Not bad, huh? If he takes office as planned next week, Santos could still face a litany of consequences for his lies. 
Representative-elect Nick LaLota, Republican of New York, has already called for an ethics investigation. I have heard from countless Long Islanders how deeply troubled they are by the headlines surrounding George Santos. As a Navy man who campaigned on restoring accountability and integrity to our government, I believe a full investigation by the House Ethics Committee and, if necessary, law enforcement is required. Representative Michael Guest, Republican of Mississippi, current ranking member on the House Ethics Committee, has yet to issue a statement on Santos as of this writing. Santos could also find himself without any committee assignments after Inauguration Day. In a similar turn of events, during her first term in the House, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican of Georgia, lost all her committee assignments after making comments that allegedly advocated for violence against Democrats. A full House chamber voted 230 to 199 made Greene's committee removals official, with 11 Republicans joining all Democrats in the majority. As recently as October, a resolution was introduced by Jewish Representative Brad Schneider, Democrat of Illinois, to censor Green for comparing President Joe Biden to Hitler. If Santos takes the oath of office but does not resign, his seat would be but does resign, his seat would be filled through a special election. On the first day of the 118th Congress, the party will make up uh, of the House of will be 20, 222 Republicans and 212 Democrats. That was GOP Congressman-elect Santos caught lying about being Jewish by Brian Fishbach for uh, December 27th, 2022. Okay, and this next one is called Israel may be preparing for a new Hamas prisoner swap. Speculation swells as Jordanian security prisoners in Israel are invited to apply to finish their sentences in Jordan, among them Hamas bombmaker Abdullah Bargaudi, currently serving 67 life sentences for murdering dozens of Israelis, by Daud Kutab, the media line, December 28, 2022. Israel appears to be ready to allow some of its security prisoners with Jordanian citizenship to complete their sentences in their home country, a move that appears to be connected with a possible prisoner exchange with Hamas. The deal could include Abdullah Bargaudi, who has been repeatedly on top of the list of prisoners drawn up by Hamas to be freed by Israel in any prisoner exchange. Israel had refused to release Bargaudi, a member of Hamas's military wing, in its 2011 prisoner exchange with the group. Bargaudi is serving 67 life sentences after his conviction in Israel for his role as a bomb maker. The move has sparked discussions in Israel that a prisoner exchange is nearing. Fadi Farah, head of Jordan's National Committee for Prisoners and Missing Persons in Israeli Detention Centers, confirmed to the media line this week that the transfers could well be connected to a Hamas-Israel prisoner exchange that, he has been in the, that has been in the works since 2014, when Israeli soldiers Oren Shalb and Hadar Golden were killed in action in Gaza and their bodies seized. Avera Mengitsu and Hashim al-Sayed Two living Israeli hostages were captured in 2014 and 2015, respectively, when they each entered Gaza of their own violation. Volition, actually. According to Farah, members of the Israeli security services have visited a number of Jordanian prisoners accompanied by plainclothes officers. The prisoners were asked to sign a document that would pave the way for them to complete their sentences in Jordan, he said.
At least four prisoners have agreed to the suggestion, while others have yet to be asked to sign this agreement, Farah said, adding that he was not sure to which Israeli unit the plainclothes officers belonged. From the Israeli side, this return of prisoners to Jordan would lessen the cost of the deal with Hamas as the Israelis will make the transfer as part of the deal rather than releasing long-held prisoners, Farah said. Jordanian national Abdel Fattah Musleh told the media line that his son Mohammed, who is serving a five-year sentence for security offenses, is one of the four prisoners who have signed the paperwork to finish his sentence in Jordan. My son has 1.5 years left in his term, Musleh said. Since his arrest, I have not been able to see him. Even though I was promised twice, I was not given an Israeli visa that would allow me to, uh, to visit. In addition to Musleh and Bargaudi, the two other prisoners who have reportedly signed the agreement to finish their terms in Jordan are Mohammed Ramawi, who is serving a life sentence for his role in the 2001 assassination of Israeli government minister Revamim Zaevi, and Tayer Lousy, who is serving a 19-year sentence for attacking Israelis. Israel in the has in the past agreed to such transfers for both criminal and security prisoners. In 2007, for instance, several Jordanian security prisoners were allowed by Israel to complete their prison terms in Jordan. Muslis said that prisoners are concerned that Israel is indeed aiming to make a transfer to Jordan part of a deal with Hamas. We have no idea what is happening. The Jordanian foreign ministry doesn't know either, he said. We are concerned that this is part of a bigger deal that involves the prisoner exchange with Hamas. Farah told Amman's Radio al-Balad on Monday that while he and the prisoners' families are skeptical, they are eager for a hopeful sign. A drowning person is willing to clutch at any straw, Farah said. Among the 17 Jordanian prisoners in Israel, 10 have already completed 18 years of their sentences, including 8 serving life terms. An 18th Jordanian prisoner was recently released but has been rearrested and held on a four-month administrative detention order. His case is not part of any burgeoning agreement, sources say. The Jordanian foreign ministry told a delegation of prisoners' parents that it had no information on the issue. The Israel Police Service told the uh, media line that it is in compliance with the provisions of the law that permits foreign prisoners to submit to a request to serve their sentences in, their country of, in the country of their citizenship. The IPS said that such requests have been submitted over the years by both criminal and security prisoners. The service also said, however, that none of the prisoners in this particular case have to date been transferred to Jordan, and that the power to make a decision on this matter lies with the Minister of Justice. Israel's Justice Ministry was contacted for a response but had not yet replied at print time. That was Israel may be preparing for a new Hamas prisoner swap by Daud Kutab from the media line, December 28, 2022. And here is a follow-up story. Israeli security sources confirm Hamas prisoner swap talks. Developing story. Israeli security sources say negotiations underway to secure release of bodies of fallen IDF soldiers Hadar Golden and Oren Shal, captives Hisham al-Sayed and Avera Megitsu. By Majdi Halabi, the media line. December 28, 2022. 
According to well-informed sources within the Israeli security services, negotiations are underway with Hamas to secure the release of the bodies of two Israel Defense Forces soldiers, Hadar Golden and Oren Shaw, as well as two civilians, Avraham Avira Mengitsu and Hashim al-Sayed, who are currently being held by Hamas in the Gaza Strip. In addition, the sources indicated that Israel would release several Hamas prisoners who were given lengthy prison sentences and will transfer them to Jordan, where they will uh, serve between 5 and 10 years in a Jordanian prison. Upon their release, they will be granted a royal amnesty, but will not be allowed to return to the West Bank or Gaza and will instead remain outside the region. Among the prisoners slated for transfer to Jordan is Abdullah Bargaudi, who was convicted and sentenced to 67 life sentences and an additional 5,200 years in prison for his involvement in attacks that resulted in the deaths of numerous Israelis and the injury of hundreds of others during the Second Intifada from 2000 to 2004. It appears that Israel will also release the bodies of Palestinians who have been involved in attacks against Israel that resulted in the deaths and injuries of innocent individuals as well as police officers and soldiers in recent years. The Israeli security services has now addressed the issue of releasing prisoners with blood on their hands, which was previously discussed within the government following the 2011 deal with Hamas to free captive IDF soldier Gilad Shalit and ultimately decided against. Abdullah Bargaudi is a member of Hamas whose family resides in Qatar. It is reported that his family has confirmed the details of the agreement that is being negotiated between him and the Israeli security services with the assistance of Egyptian and Qatari mediators. It is also stated that Israel has reached an agreement with Jordan on all the necessary details, including the fact that the prisoners on the list hold Jordanian passports, which allows the Jordanian authorities to imprison them according to Jordanian law and recognize the validity of the Israeli judgments against them. According to a, a source close to incoming Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the details of the plan to release Hamas prisoners and secure the release of the bodies of Israeli soldiers and civilian captives being held by Hamas are known to Netanyahu. The source also indicated that the incoming Prime Minister is not opposed to the plan in principle and that it will be discussed in the political and security cabinet at, of the new government for further consideration and decision-making. The plan was reportedly formulated by the Shin Bet Israel Security Agency, Mossad, Israel's intelligence agency, and representatives from Amman military intelligence in the Israel Defense Forces. That was Israeli security sources confirm Hamas prisoner swap talks by Majdi Halibi from the media line, December 28, 2022. Here's one more news story. New government in Israel meet reality. A new government begins its term with an advantage. It has enough votes to survive for a full term and implement its plans. But there is also a disadvantage. Very little good from all those who did not vote for it by Shemuel Rosner, December 29, 2022. Consider the irony. The most conservative religious coalition in Israel's history is also the first one to make a gay couple eligible to be buried alongside the nation's greats on Mount Herzl. Amir Ohana of the Likud party, the new speaker of the Knesset, is married to a male spouse. As speaker, he will receive a burial plot for both him and his spouse. We wish him a long life after which he will make history. 
the flowers go to the ultra-Orthodox parties who made it possible. A new government begins its march through Israel's treacherous political waters. A new government begins its term with an advantage. It has enough votes to survive for a full term and implement its plans. But there is also a disadvantage. Very little good will, will from all those who did not vote for it. In fact, there is apprehension, there is tension, there is more than a grain of desperation and there is readiness to push back against some of this government's plans with full force. Only time will tell which plans becomes actuality that merit a pushback. Only time will tell if the opposition can truly master an effective pushback. But let's begin with the basics. Two months ago, Israel went to the polls for a fifth time in less than four years, having failed to elect a mix of parties that could form a durable coalition. The fifth was a charm. 64 seats were allocated to four parties who vowed to form a right-wing religious coalition. These are Likud with 32 seats, Religious Zionism with 14, Shas with 11, and United Torah Judaism with 7. One ruling party, three religious parties. It is a relatively coherent group, but also a group with very little room for maneuver. Every member is needed for every vote. Every party is essential to the mix. No party has a viable substitute for the current coalition. Whether they like each other or not, they are stuck together. For how long depends mostly on their ability to govern and keep the group intact. Do they like each other? Consider the following fact. Even though the elections were two months ago, a long time, even though the structure of the coalition was determined by the voters with no alternatives for anyone, and even though all members of the coalition vowed to join what ultimately became the new government, it took Prime Minister Benjamin, Not you, ben Benjamin Netanyahu more than two months to complete the task. There are two reasons for this. First, the other members of the coalition may like Netanyahu, or at least have respect for him, but they do not trust him. A long history of leading his party astray left its mark on all potential allies. As a result, they want everything in cash up front. Promises and commitments no longer work for the PM. Second, with the decisive victory, after four years of instability came a great appetite. The leaders of the coalition see an opportunity to make great things in a short time to change Israel's course. They have no patience and show very little restraint in their quest to move fast, go big, get what they want. Netanyahu, the man in charge, had to navigate a delicate course. He wanted this government to form and had no other government he could form. He wanted to advance some of the bold plans that his allies were pushing for. He also wanted to avoid, reaching, over, avoid overreaching and make sure that the government will not be biting off more than it could possibly chew. And he is the one with the experience, the one who knows what could happen when a government acts hastily without regard to social, political, and international realities. Add another layer of complication, an elephant in the room. Netanyahu is a man on trial and is likely to remain on trial for many months or years. One doesn't have to be highly suspicious of his intentions and motivations to understand that such a situation must have some measure of influence on his calculations. Surely he wants Israel to be a thriving country. Surely he wants to keep Israel safe and leave a legacy of a great leader. And yet the trial poses a risk of jail time. Not even a saint could carve a way forward without leaving some room for this fact to be factored in as he makes decisions. Netanyahu's first term as prime minister was in 1996. That's a long time ago. Looking at the photo taken on the day that long-forgotten group was sworn in, one realizes that only one of them survived. 
Netanyahu. You can easily find the photo and see for yourself. Along the then-young Netanyahu sits President Ezra Weitzman, long gone. Then there are the ministers, very few in comparison to the mammoth government that was sworn in last week. The less stable Israel's government become, Israel's governments become, the larger they are. Handing portfolios is no longer about wanting, a po wanting politicians to implement policies. It's about wanting, wanting politicians to have something to lose to keep them loyal. On the right side of the 96th photo is Yuli Edelstein. Last week, Edelstein, former health minister, former speaker, a man who seems to still entertain the idea of one day succeeding Netanyahu, was notified he will get no ministry to manage. To his left in the photo is Sahi Hanigbi. He did not even run, but will get an influential job as national security advisor. He is no longer a political player, but Netanyahu needs a sound advice, moderation, and experience. The list is long, and there's no need for further detailed elaboration. Natan Sharensky is retired, Raphael Eitan is dead, Moshe Katsav first became president, then was jailed for rape, then retired. Eli Yashi lost his battle for Shas and left. Benny Begin is retired. Dan Meridor is retired. Many members of the 1996 government became, with time, Netanyahu's greatest critics. But he was shrewder, crueler, and more determined and more charismatic than all of them. They perished. He stayed. As a young PM with older peers, he became older PM 73 years old with most of the younger peers. And these new peers, many of whom have little experience and even less patience to make their mark, are making Netanyahu's life difficult. Netanyahu learned some of his lessons the hard way, hard for him and hard for the citizens of this country. More than a quarter century ago, the then inexperienced new PM ordered the removal of a few inches of rock in Jerusalem, opening an exit from the Western Wall Tunnels. This sparked bloody riots, forced Netanyahu to rush back to Israel from a visit to Europe and precipitate a dramatic crisis. He thought he was making a bold yet small decision. The result was 17 dead Israeli soldiers and close to 100 dead Palestinians. The result was also a weakened Netanyahu. A direct line can be drawn from his rushed decision in the fall of 96 to the Hebron Agreement uh, he was forced to sign in January of 97. One could argue that this, uh, that this agreement, opposed by some of Netanyahu's right-wing allies, was the beginning of the end of his first short-lived government. So Netanyahu knows that for a PM and a government, even small plans, presumably of little consequences, can produce dramatic results. And his partners have no small plans. They have only big ones, a blueprint for a revolutionary term of government. That's why the opposition is so nervous and desperate. The new Homeland Security Minister, Etamar Ben-Givur, plans to control the border police on his own. He intends to detach it from the main police force and use it to implement his ambitious plans to restore order in the Negev desert. The new finance minister intends to legitimize and formally legalize distant outposts in the West Bank, a move that has the potential to open a rift with an already suspicious Biden administration. The new justice minister, Yariv Levin, plans to alter the way justices are elevated to the Supreme Court and make it more political. Levin is one of Netanyahu's most trusted allies. He managed the coalition negotiations for him and sat as the interim speaker to pass the urgent laws that the coalition was committed to passing even before the government is sworn in. 
Among these laws is one that makes Shah's leader, Arie Derry, serve as a minister. Derry was tried, convicted, and jailed in the 90s for bribery. He had to wait seven long years before rejoining the political arena as a full member. Then last year he was in trouble again for tax evasion. A plea bargain saved him from having to serve more jail time, but whether he could become a minister without having to wait until after the cooling period again was not clear. To make it clear, a law was passed that made it legal for him to be a minister. On January 5th, the Supreme Court is slated to, legal, to consider the legality of this new legal construction, and especially a large group of 11 justices will hear the case. Derry is a leader of an ultra-Orthodox party, and the agenda of such parties for the coming term is also ambitious. They want more funds to keep their schools running without having to submit to a curriculum mandated by the state. They want to make sure that further attempts to force their youngsters to join the IDF do not materialize. In fact, this is one of the meeting points of two agendas. Levin Injustice believes that the legal system is too powerful and uses its power to limit the government's ability to implement its plans. The Haredi politicians agree. A law to absolve Haredi men from the draft was struck down by the court because it violated equality. The ultra-Orthodox would thus push any law that would make it impossible for the court to strike down a new draft law. The power of the ultra-Orthodox legislators is one of the, this government's weaknesses. Many voters who wanted the incoming coalition voted for it because of its uh, promise to provide security, tame Arab violence, and reign in the court. But these voters, some of which are secular or traditional or even moderate Orthodox, did not intend to hand the Haredi leaders a license to overhaul Israel's culture. Thus, when last week it was suddenly revealed that the government plans to pass legislation that could potentially lead to discrimination against minorities, the outcome was loud. The outcry was loud. In fact, this is a case worth examining in more detail as it can be a prelude for many such plans. The idea still part of a coalition agenda agreement is to delete the part in the anti-discrimination law that makes it illegal to provide service to someone on religious grounds. Americans are familiar with this type of controversy, which not so long ago revolved around whether a bakery owned by a religious person must bake a cake for a same-sex wedding. But it is also about other things. For example, interviewed on the radio, Minister Orit Strzok of the Religious Zionism Party said that when the change is made, doctors could refuse to provide medical treatments that contravene their religious beliefs if there's another doctor that could provide the same treatment. This ignited a storm of resistance and condemnation, and some threats of action. One bank declared that it would not hand loans to institutions or businesses that discriminate on such basis. Legal offices declared that they will not represent such businesses. Municipalities, hospitals, universities, organizations all expressed indignation and vowed action. Can the coalition pass such still pass such legislation? Maybe. But what would be the price, and what would be the reaction, and what other plans could such controversies spoil? Netanyahu was quick to declare that no one is going to enact discrimination on his watch. Other speakers were sent to clarify the true intentions of the proposed change. That was all too little too late. The government hit a brick wall. It was facing its first reality check. The opposition scored a small victory. 
True, the jury is still out, the coalition agreement still declares an intention to alter the law, but it wouldn't be a surprise if this idea is buried alongside many other such ideas. The dynamic is familiar to all careful observers of politics. In a democracy, a new government comes with many plans and implements, if it's lucky, just a few of them. There's always a more urgent crisis to handle. <clears throat> There's always this or that legal or bureaucratic obstacle. <clears throat> There's public opinion and international pressure, as well as budgetary constraints. An experienced politician would not let such spoiled plans ruin his day. An experienced politician knows that plans are made to be re-examined and reconsidered based on circumstances, but a government with an oppressive cadre of high-ranking inexperienced leaders could be challenged by the all-but-guaranteed frustration it will encounter. Examples? The coalition agreement vows a change of to the law of return. It vows such change will be quick, and change is possible, but quite far from guaranteed. The outcry over the discrimination clause proved that uh, not all plans of, of all members of the coalition could pass a reality check. Again, history could be a good teacher. More than a decade ago, Netanyahu shelved a proposed conversion law because of a call he received from Washington. Congresswoman Nita Lowry was on the line. She told him the law caused her to worry. She is concerned, the spokesman explained, that this bill would alienate Jews around the world and risk weakening the sense of unity with the diaspora that is critical to Israel's security. Netanyahu knew that a worried Lowy was not good for Israel. A Democrat from New York, she was a member of a conservative synagogue, but also a member of the powerful House Appropriations Committee and chair of the State and Foreign Operations Subcommittee. The PM is wiser as a political survivor than all of his partners, and he knows that the trick is to make a change as dramatic as one can without letting a dangerous genie of resistance out of the bottle. In 2011, he watched with horror as hundreds of thousands of Israelis marched in demand of social justice. Luckily for him, that movement, as charmingly young and photogenic as it was, did not have a clear agenda with which to force the hand of the government. And yet Netanyahu remembers how such eruptions of protest and indignation can take a country by storm. Netanyahu knows that the next time he may not be so lucky. Thus, he will try to convince his partners to prioritize and be careful, do what they can without handing the opposition another easy victory. This will not be easy for him to achieve because, he has, as has already been said, his partners have a large appetite and they don't trust him. When he tells them that they must be careful, they suspect that he doesn't truly want to implement their agenda, not because of tactical reasons, let's not wake the opposition, but because of strategic reasons. Netanyahu was never quite enthusiastic when proposals, came, uh, proposals to tame the court came to the fore. Hence, he will preach moderation and his partners will try to force his hand. He will deliberately deliberate and delay while his partners will make uh, political threats and push even harder. What would be the result? Last week, the time for bold promises ended and the time for responsibly managing a state with many challenges began. A mature opposition would take a wait-and-see approach before it panics. A mature coalition would wipe the slate of grand plans clean and act responsibly. In short, we need all our politicians to be mature. Is this a naive proposition or a realistic expectation? And that was New Government in Israel Meet Reality by Shemuel Rosner, December 28, 2022. 
Okay, now let's go to the commentary section. And uh, let's start with uh, this one. The Neo-Alt-Right by Karen Learman Block, December 27, 2022. For the past few months, a line from Matisse Yahoo's song, One Day, Don't Want to Fight No More, has been running through my head. It's had little to do with Islamists, Black Hebrew Israel Israelites, or even white supremacists. It's been my reaction to Jews who have situated themselves on the far right and find daily glee in bullying anyone who disagrees with them. I spent the last eight years arguing with the left, trying to explain to them that what they're doing is illiberal, hoping, helping to popularize the term leftism is re to refer to this illiberalism. <clears throat> in doing so, I made peace with traditional conservatives who I've found to be rational, respectful, and dignified. Even during the Trump years, both classical liberals and traditional conservatives tried to focus on his achievements and overlook his unpresidential behavior and seemingly intentional or at least uh, reckless steering of the white nationalist pot. Then the January 6th insurrection happened, and we began to see a division between those who felt the primarily white nationalist attack on the Capitol was justified and those like myself who were horrified. But I really began to see the split when Putin invaded Ukraine last February. While every rational person on the planet was appalled, my Trump-lumbing Facebook friends blamed Volodymyr Zelensky. Conspiracy theories about Ukraine began to pop up on an hourly basis. While Facebook has never been politics-free, it had never reached a Twitter level of toxicity. But now those in the far right only wanted to fight about everything. I get the anger. I live in New York City. Leftism has destroyed this city. What the left has done to our kids alone, from normalizing child pornography to making trans surgery without parental consent acceptable, is enough to never want to vote for a Democrat again. But the anger has it made me unable to see and condemn other forces of evil. And then Trump dinner, then the Trump dinner with Kanye and Nick Fuentes happened. Not only did non-Jewish Trump lovers jump to his defense, but Jewish Trump lovers did as well. They fervently refused to criticize him and tried to publicly humiliate anyone who did, just as he had. Suddenly, the line between conservatives and between true conservatives and what has been called the alt-right became quite clear. Alt-right isn't the perfect term. It came into use after 2008 to describe white supremacists, ethno-nationalists, who are anti-immigrant, racist, and anti-globalists. Many believe a Jewish cabal controls the government, media, and universities, with the endgame of white genocide, the Great Replacement Theory. But how many on the far right, including Jews, were quashing all criticism of white supremacists? So just as we eventually began to call liberals who refused to denounce leftism leftists, shouldn't we do the same here? Shouldn't we find a label to differentiate them from true conservatives? I began to call them the neo-alt-right, or alt-right adjacent. There are many streams of conservatism, of course, but for the purposes of this article I'm focusing on these two. What are the differences between true conservatives and the neo-alt-right? I think most would agree that traditional conservatives, think Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, National Review, the Tikva Fund, can be defined by decency, rationality, and integrity, tolerance for respectful dissent, a focus on principles, not personalities or partisanship, traditional family and religious values, support rational gun reform, 
and an understanding that with rights come responsibilities. And the neo-alt-right? They are characterized as being rude, angry, confrontational, and narcissistic, intolerant of divergent viewpoints. A cult of personality worship and hyper-partisanship riddled with conspiracy theories refusing to criticize Trump no matter what he says or does, vociferously pro-Putin and spouting Russian propaganda incessantly, embracing pro-fascism authoritarianism if it will defeat deep state globalism, Second Amendment absolutists get your hands off my guns and being unable to comprehend the idea that with rights come responsibility. This list is far from definitive. It is much easier to differentiate liberals from leftists since every aspect of the woke revolution is illiberal. But what? But it's a beginning. Why is it important? Because perhaps someone in the neo-alt-right will finally begin to realize that they become a mirror image of leftists. I'm not overly optimistic. Extremists, by definition, aren't good at self-reflection. But there is a, a much larger issue here. In order to fight the evils inherent to extreme leftism, we need the right to be the sane. We have no other option. In the latest polling, less than a third of the GOP wants Trump to be the 2024 candidate. While that's a huge positive, it also means that 31% of the GOP 11 million Americans are either alt-right or neo-alt-right. Yes, I would argue that if you still support Trump, especially when we have DeSantis, Haley, and other rational alternatives, you fit into one of those categories. This country is founded on fundamental enlightenment, dem democratic principles, not on white nationalism. This is what ties classical liberals and traditional conservatives, and what is going to get us out of the toxic maelstream in which we now find ourselves. We also need the GOP to remain sane to fight the alt-right anti-Semitism. The tepid GOP response to Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Nick Fuentes, and the rising tide of white nationalism is alarming, even more so than the failure of Democrats to forcefully respond to Representatives Rashida Tlaib and Elon Omar. White supremacists don't just believe that Jews nefariously control the world. Many also believe that the only way to stop what they think is an attempt at white genocide is to exterminate the Jewish population. Yes, that remains the white nationalist endgame. Do our Jewish neo-alt-right friends know this? Do they understand that they're being used by white supremacists just as Jewish leftists are being used by Islamists? That the neo-alt-right is just another form of Hellenistic conformity? They don't seem to see it that way, of course. They appear to believe that a united extremist front is needed to dismantle leftism, even if that means condoning dangerous anti-Semitism. As history has shown, this has never worked out well for Jews or for dismantling extremism. What's needed is a coalition of the sane left-right-center to force extremists on both sides out of the public sphere. It's well past time to make that a priority. That was the neo-alt-right by Karen Lehman Block, December 27, 2022. Karen Lehman Block is editor-in-chief of White Rose Magazine. All right, here's another one. Meet Me in Philly for Love and History by Lisa Ellen Niver. December 27, 2022. Philadelphia is a combination of two Greek words, love, filio, and brother, Adelphos, and known as the city of brotherly love. The city's founder, William Penn, hoped it would become a place where freedom would ring 
and it is the home of the Liberty Bell. I lived in Philly when I went to the University of Pennsylvania for college. I often returned to visit my roommate and join her at the annual fundraiser for Living Beyond Breast Cancer. The 2022 Living Beyond Breast Cancer Butterfly Ball honored and celebrated five amazing women who are changing conversations about cancer. Together we raised over a million dollars in support of LBBC's key programs of providing both trusted information and a community of support. Over a hundred years ago, the City Hall Annex was built and the people of Philadelphia went to this government facility for over 70 years to get official documents notarized and it is listed on the National Registry of Historic Places. Now a luxury hotel in the Autograph Collection, which opened in 2019 showcasing its historic architecture and modern amenities, the Notary Hotel stamps a custom seal on your paperwork on arrival. In the grand lobby of, uh, full of books, art, and enormous arches, there was a display case showing typewriters from the 1920s. The dressers in each room are made from historic notary cabinets used in the original building. This is my favorite location in Center City and close to Love Park, the Liberty Bell, and Rittenhouse Square for incredible dining choices. My suite had a stunning view of City Hall and the evening lights. I walked from the hotel to Penn campus to talk to students about a career in journalism and then used the speedy Wi-Fi on property to participate in a Zoom talk with my 1989 classmates about our travel experts. expertise. Where do we eat in Philly? We loved the Love Park P-A-R-C, and Rouge in Rittenhouse Square, which is an easy stroll from the Notary Hotel. The museums and art collections in Philadelphia are outstanding, and I did a television segment about visiting Philly for KTLA-TV in Los Angeles. I highly recommend the National Constitution Center, the Betsy Ross House, the Barnes Museum, and the Museum of the American Revolution. There's so much to do, you need to visit more than once. That was Meet Me in Philly for Love and History by Lisa Ellen Niver, December 27, 2020. 22. Here's the final one. Don't condemn Al Sharpton when he condemns anti-Semitism. What is critical for the increasingly frayed relationship between African Americans and Jews is that we not allow people like Whoopi Goldberg and Kanye West to be its spokespeople. Blacks and Jews are and always were brothers and sisters. How did we allow it to come to this? By Rabbi Shmuley Boutique, December 27, 2022. Hardly a day goes by without another celebrity taking a hammer to the black-Jewish relationship. The latest coming back for seconds is Whoopi Goldberg, who ironically says she changed her name from Karen Elaine Johnson to the very Jewish-sounding name because, is because she feels herself to be Jewish. But in that case, why is she regularly assailing the sacred memory of six million and minimizing the Holocaust? After being suspended by ABC earlier this year, for saying on The View that the genocide against the Jews was just white-on-white -white violence, she decided to double down in an interview with the Times of London. In arguing that Jews are not an identifiable ethnicity or race, she said, it doesn't change the fact that you could not tell a Jew on a street. You could find me. You couldn't find them. That was the point I was making. But you would have, to thought, would have thought that I'd taken a big old stinky dump on the table, but naked. 
Personally, I would have been far less offended had she defecated in public, as she suggests, than trivialize the Holocaust. What is critical for the increasingly frayed relationship between African Americans and Jews is that we not allow people like Whoopi Goldberg and Kanye West to be its spokespeople. Blacks and Jews are and always were brothers and sisters. How did we allow it to come to this? Last week at Carnegie Hall, I was joined by America's foremost black philanthropist and chairman of Carnegie Hall, Robert Smith, along with Elisha Weisel, Evie Weisel's son, in an event of fraternity and brotherhood that was as inspirational as it was dramatic. An evening of lights calling for black and Jewish unity soared into a massive media event marking the birth of a new national movement. Fifteen days of light, as we call the project, was made for African Americans and Jews to find common ground in our similar traditions of lighting candles during the darkest time of the year. This year, the eight days of Hanukkah fall directly adjacent to the seven days of Kwanzaa, a coincidence of calendars which will not reoccur until 2041, presenting an opportunity for two communities, each with a legacy of triumph through belief in God and his prophets, to illuminate the country with a brilliant candlelit display of unity. It began with a full-page ad in the New York Times, produced and paid for by the World Values Network, which I founded to promote universal Jewish values and fight for human rights, calling on all Americans to join the Jewish and black communities in lighting candles to dispel the darkness of racism and anti-Semitism in America. The project was created together with my close friend Elisha and Robert F. Smith, a true friend of the Jewish people and foremost um, a champion of African-American higher education. We were joined by Dr. W. Franklin Richardson, Chairman of Conference of National Black Churches, which comprises the national leadership of the seven largest historically black denominations in America, whose voice added untold reach and meaning to our shared message. Our call for unity made its way to the nation's largest newsrooms, with the Black Entertainment Network highlighting our ad as one of the foremost reactions against Kanye West to emerge from the black community alongside the com uh, comments made by the rap artist Pusha T and also actor Kenan Thompson, who mocked West's allegations to Hitler during a Saturday Night Live sketch broadcast on the same day as our ad. On the first night of Hanukkah, a week later, the project blossomed into a uniquely uplifting and gorgeous public menorah lighting in New York, City, New York City's Carnegie Hall. Elisha Weisel, Robert Smith, and I were joined by New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who spoke beautifully, declaring that the light we spread by combating Jew hatred is the nation's largest city would eventually cascade through the entire country. Carnegie Hall CEO Sir Clive Gillinson and his wife Anya, dear friend with whom we spend many a Friday night, were instrumental in organizing the moving and memorial, memorable event, which also drew the influential clergyman and media personality Reverend Conrad Tillard, who once ran Mosque No. 7 in Harlem for the Nation of Islam, the same that was headed by Malcolm X before he, like Conrad, broke with the nation. Reverend Al Sharpton, whom I invited, joined as well. Many objected to the invitation, and a prominent Jewish organization withdrew its participation. But Sharpton, or Reverend Al as I refer to him, ever since I took, took him, together with Shimon Perez to Israel in 2001, deserves a lot of credit. Even his detractors admitted that he gave a profoundly eloquent denunciation of anti-Semitism and articulated a vision of blacks and Jews fighting bigotry and racism together. 
insisting in his address that there is never a time more needed than now for blacks and Jews to remember the struggle that we've gone through, he added, I cannot fight for black rights if I don't fight for Jewish rights. Each of the speakers lit their own menorah, celebrating Hanukkah and standing with the Jewish community amid a national explosion of anti-Semitism. Meaningful moments of unity are rarely achieved without controversy, however, and many within my own Chabad community took issue with Reverend Sharpton for not adequately apologizing for his role in the Crown Heights riots of August 1991. When I first met and befriended Al Sharpton nearly 20 years ago, I was aware of his reputation in the Jewish community and challenged him to a debate. He shocked me by accepting, and our debate was a take-no-prisoners explosive exchange it held in a midtown church. When it was over, and we were both thoroughly exhausted, I invited him to a kosher steakhouse in Manhattan. Again, he shocked me by accepting. A friendship ensued, and right after the 9-11 attacks, I invited him to Israel for a solidarity trip with Israeli victims of terror, with Shimon Perez, then Israel's foreign minister, agreed to co-host. In the years since, Sharpton has come, to, come closer to the Jewish community, drawing headlines in 2019, were publicly admitting that he could have done more to heal rather than harm during the Crown Heights riots and recounting the rebuke he received over the affair from civil rights legend Coretta Scott King. Folks, that will do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. Until next time, everybody, shalom and peace.